On this edition of the program, we're talking a little bit Mike Pence, a little bit Bidenomics, and Trump's new truth social gambit to fend off the wolves when it comes to his January 6th indictment. And we do a little debate prep for former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Wednesday, August 9th, 2023. Your old pal Justin Robert Young joining you from Austin, Texas. I do think this one's probably going to come out on Tuesday as well, so you might be listening to it on Tuesday. This is normally our Wednesday episode, but I think I'm going to put this one out because We're not going to be covering the results of the election that's happening in Ohio. We're going to cover that in a second. But we do have a lot that we need to clear out. And here's the biggest news as far as the Republican nomination for president in 2024 goes. Former Vice President Mike Pence has successfully qualified for the first Republican presidential primary debate later this month, August 23rd. All of our eyes are on it. We very much want to know who's going to be up on that stage. We are rapidly coming to the end of events that could change this entirely lopsided primary. Hence did this by meeting the over 40,000 donor mark and, of course, the polling requirements, which he has already done. With this, he's set to join seven other candidates who have already qualified. Big Chungus, Donald Trump, who may or may not actually do it. Ron DeSantis. Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, and Doug Burgum. Now, the speculation is all around whether or not Pence will face off with the man for whom he won the presidency and vice presidency in 2016 with Donald Trump. The discord between the two, of course, has intensified since Pence has been involved in the federal investigation that led to Trump's recent indictment related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. If you are a uh, $3 subscriber, then you listened to Trump's lawyer do the car wash through all of the Sunday shows. And he pointed out, you know, that that what, what Pence has said is not damaging to them. That's their contention, that while Pence has pushed back on the way that Trump's legal team has talked about what he has done, one thing that, at least according to Pence's book, they can agree on is that Donald Trump did not do anything illegal. Will that come up during the debate? I'm sure somebody will ask Pence the question. If Trump is on stage to hear it is another question entirely. While Trump has indicated that he might skip the debate to avoid sharing the stage with lower polling candidates, his presidents, of course, would highlight the ongoing rift with many of the candidates, Pence included. Pence is on track to qualify for the second GOP debate in September, 
The Republican National Committee's updated rules have heightened the stakes, requiring candidates to have 50,000 unique donors and achieve 3% in certain polls. No poll, no candidate has met the polling threshold for that debate as of now, but that's more because of the window in which the polls have to come in. So it was embarrassing that Pence had not qualified. We have sufficiently shamed him for being so far behind other lower polling candidates. And the reason why I would like to point out that it is shameful is not because he didn't hit that polling threshold sooner. In fact, he might be a better barometer for how fast it takes somebody with a national name recognition in the Republican primary to get to that level. Because some of the other folks, including Perry Johnson and Doug Burgum, have effectively lit a pile of money on fire so they could get past that finish line. We talked about it here on this show with Dave Leventhal, the money man, that both of those candidates have effectively said, give me $1 that helps me qualify. I'll give you a $20 gift certificate. So congratulations. You're going to make $19 whether or not you like Perry Johnson or Doug Burgum. Mike Pence did not do that. And it kind of makes me worried about his fundraising. He has not raised a lot of money. He raised less money than Vivek Ramaswamy. That's before you get into the amount of money that Ramaswamy put in there for himself. So not great for, for old Pensaru, but he is across that finish line now. That's good for him. He is having a bit of a moment. He's getting a lot of press because of the January 6th indictments. You have seen some of the language sharpen around the January 6th indictment of Trump from some of the Republican candidates. Pence making clear that he was not asked to pause the voting. He was asked to throw the election to the House of Representatives, which would have opened massive chaos. So he has pushed back. Very forcefully on that, Ron DeSantis over the last 72 hours directly saying that Donald Trump did not win the 2020 election. You would think that things like this should have been said earlier. They were not. We're here now where Trump has, I think, on aggregate of 30 percent lead. Let's talk about Bidenomics. It's another thing that we've brought up on this show. It is a bold, bold statement by the White House to tout the economy. Because while we have seen that the economic indicators that normally guide the American understanding of the economy get better, unemployment's very low. We are seeing inflation get back to its regular pattern of growth. That does not mean that the Inflation that we already saw is going away. It is not. We have not seen any kind of correction to where it was. It is just returning to where it is. So everything that's as expensive as it is now will remain this expensive and only get more expensive going forward. But hopefully it will begin to grow closer to the 2% range, which is where the Fed wants to see it. And so the White House said, let's be bold. Let's put our stamp on the economy right now. 
Let's say Bidenomics did this. Let's sell optimism. Let's sell hope. While everybody else is doomed saying, let's be a ray of sunshine. And I think that I understand their perspective on this because the Democratic Party has not been a ray of sunshine over the last five years. Because they were the opposition party and also because the tenor of Democrats is, you know, dour. It's not sunshine and rainbows. It's not shining city on a hill. They've essentially seeded the concept of being proud of America. <laughs> you know, they've they have allowed the American flag to be looked at as a signifier of the Republican Party. So th- there there has not been a ton of hooray for us from Democratic politicians. It's been where we're, we're struggling, we're fighting. The world sucks and we're we're we're, we're the cure. And so, because of the kind of politician that Joe Biden is, I can get why you would say Bidenomics. That's what we want to do. We are from a bygone era of Democratic politicians. Yeah, we fight hard, but we also demonstrate when we've won and we beat back this bad economy. All the doomsayers were saying we we're going to be in a recession. But look at us now, Ma. Look at us now. Here's the problem. The American people don't seem to see it. Yet, Bidenomics faces skepticism from voters two months after its implementation. Polls indicate significant doubt about the economy's direction, associating Bidenomics with tax increases and inflation. And yet, despite this, the White House officials that spoke to Politico say that they are optimistic, quoting the old Wayne Gretzky Michael Scott, quote, that you do not go where the puck is. You go where the puck is going to be. And they believe that inflation will continue to decrease and voters will give credit to Biden. This, of course, will also lead to more job opportunities, reduced prescription drug costs and improved infrastructure that has been passed and funded by Biden in Congress. But on the other hand, while we are in this delta, the Republicans have seized on the Bidenomics label, saying, well, if things aren't good now, then let's do everything we can to cement Bidenomics as what happens when a Democrat is in the White House. While acknowledging potential pitfalls, the Biden administration remains proactive in promoting the benefits of their economic measures. They point to positive indicators such as declining inflation, job growth, diminishing recession chatter. Now we are seeing banks say that it will possibly happen in 2024, a recession. We've not seen it yet. Seen more and more bold takes from the left saying, well, whatever happened to that recession? Whatever happened? Everybody was so sure it was going to happen. Turns out it didn't. White House also wants to leverage their legislative priorities and wins the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the Chips and Science Act to illustrate that they are driving not only short term, but long term economic progress. And as the economy picks up, they expect public sentiment to shift in their favor. This is part of a larger strategy where multiple officials, including President Biden, are currently this week touring the country to highlight 
Biden-era projects, hoping to bridge the disconnect between positive economic data and public sentiment, which currently shows a decline in the approval of Biden's economic handling. And here's the reason why. Inflation, it ain't hard. Even if you have a job at the lowest rungs of our economy, inflation hurts the worst. And this is where, if this strategy goes wrong, it will be because the Democratic Party is so beholden to city-dwelling managerial class types, which not only is an unquestioned bedrock of their voter base, but also really makes up everybody that runs these parties. They are so sure that they are more like America, that they are not looking beyond their city borders. You've seen members of the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party, including Ro Khanna, point out that a lot of Americans simply do not feel that the economy has gotten better for them. They still feel like they're behind the eight ball. They still feel like there is wage stagnation, and they still feel like the money that they are bringing home isn't going as far. And so now we get into this Very interesting chicken or the egg. Are Americans down on the economy because they are actually down on the economy? And that's why we see media messages that say such. Or are they just simply stupid and people aren't talking positively enough about the economy because that's what will change sentiment. The Biden administration is kind of betting on the latter. By the way, let's go ahead and check in on Joe Biden's approval rating. It is currently underwater by 12.6%, according to Real Clear Politics. That is not as bad as it's been. He was 19 down back in July of uh, 2022. That was the worst of it, but it is certainly not the best. Either. One more thing that I wanted to bring to you guys, and that is something that I have noticed on the very chaotic truth social account of the 45th president of the United States, Donald John Trump. And that, (laughs) just so I could discuss the chaos, Trump obviously, you know, does not forget slights and the U.S. women's soccer team, which is obviously a, a you know very progressive group of athletes. And when they were winning the World Cup four years ago, was very vocal about their opposition to Trump. They went out in the World Cup, the Women's World Cup, which is happening right now, and laid an egg. They sucked. They stunk on ice. They were bad. They did not score goals. They are supposed to be, and on paper, the best team in the world still by a pretty significant margin from people that I have uh, heard talk about this, that their takes seem to be legitimate. They certainly pay attention to this kind of stuff more than I do. The second best team in the Women's World Cup could have been made from people that were either on the U.S. bench or left off the team. There is an element of female soccer supremacy that the United States very much enjoys. 
And yet, that team got blanked by Sweden and then lost on penalty kicks. There's a lot of reasons to complain about that team, and I'm here for it, for the record. I believe that all of the the brand of teams, and I will put the U.S. women's soccer team in there, I will put the men's basketball team in there. We, as a nation, I'm going to go we here. The United States of America is the best at those two things in those two divisions. Whenever we are not winning, we should be screaming and yelling and ripping the players because and the coaches, ripping everybody involved, tear everything down to the studs if we don't win. When we win, we should say, great. Because folks, to quote a very wise man, the standard is the standard. And I do believe that as the United States Soccer Federation did equalize pay between the men and the women, which I think is a good idea, whether or not the women's team brings in the kind of money that the men's team does, and they don't, simply because rights for these things are more valuable for the men than they are for the women. That's just what it is. That, that's just the economics. But I'm I'm down for them equalizing the pay because I want to incentivize the idea that winners get paid more. Here's the problem with the women's soccer team. They didn't win. And I'm here to rip them. That is gender equality. Ripping them is gender equality. But unfortunately, because the women's team entered into the fray of politics. This has now become a culture war issue where conservatives are rooting against him and the liberals are making excuses for him. And I'm here to say enough of both the ends. Enough. Enough. I don't want to hear about whether or not Megan Rapino has a lot of political opinions. I want to hear about how Megan Rapino was washed up and should be off this team. That's what I want to hear. I don't know why immediately I get in to Stephen A. Smith cadence because what you have done is failed the United States of America. All right. Enough of that. So that's Donald Trump. Donald Trump ripped the the U.S. national team. And so that that touched off a lot of this. But that's the kind of stuff that's happening on his truth social. It is eclectic as it's ever been. However, in reading through it over the last few days, there is something that he keeps mentioning that I found to be interesting. And I'm going to read one of these truths to explain it to you. Every one of these fake charges filed against me by the corrupt Biden DOJ could have been filed 2.5 years ago. But they waited and waited until I became dominant in the polls. And then they filed them all, including locals, right in the middle of my campaign. They want anyone but Trump, not fair and perhaps not legal, all caps, election interference, three exclamation points. I found this line of argument to be interesting on a few levels from the point of persuasion. First is to me the most interesting. The fact that saying that they should have filed these two and a half years ago is a soft acknowledgement to something that we've seen in the polling, which is that even people that would be inclined to vote for Donald Trump believe he did something either unethical or possibly illegal 
That was at least in the immediate aftermath of the January 6th indictment. And so what he's saying is I'm acknowledging that I need to prove to you that I didn't do anything wrong. So he's not saying these should never have been brought. He is saying they should have been brought two and a half years ago if you were going to bring them. That is something very interesting to me. Because it is reframing it in a way that allows for doubt that he might be guilty. The next two are, you know, obviously a little bit more partisan. Uh, He is painting the prosecutions as political. Not only is he doing this, but his lawyer is doing this. This is a baked in part of their legal defense. That they want the government, the prosecutor, Jack Smith, to prove why this is not political. They want to operate from that point of view. First off, explain to me why this is not political persecution. Then we can get into the facts. That is not only for public consumption, that is what his lawyer is saying. So understand that that is baked into all of this at every level. And then there's this. It's a classic truism. Which, the way I understand the phrase truism is, it's just a thing that feels right. It, 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 it sits in your, in, your, in your brain comfortably. Is it actually right? No. No. I mean, not necessarily it's not actually right. Is it pitched as right? Does it feel like it could be right? Yes, and oftentimes truisms are the bread and butter of politicians. They want, I mean, uh, you know, this is this is pay your fair share. Do we really know what a fair share is? Do we really want to get into the economics of things? No. We just know rich people don't pay enough, I pay too much, you pay your fair share. So, should they have filed it two and a half years ago? Uh, I mean, I would I would really rely on legal expertise here. I don't know how much. I mean, I guess the other argument with this is that if he's like, well, why did they file it now when they're also going to say that they need to run this trial in 11 minutes? So they waited two and a half years to file it, but now they're going to push back. If we try to, de- to to delay this trial until after election day, seems fishy. That's what they're going to do. I mean, they've already said this, uh, they being the Trump team. Trump's lawyers has said that a case like this should not be going to trial for three years from when the indictment comes down. So they're going to fight on timing because it it appears very clear right now that the Trump campaign specifically sees a win in the idea that this is politically motivated and anything they can do to push that they will, including this timeline defense. This is your up. 
update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you go for all of your wall-to-wall politics news needs. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk in, in a bit about issue one in Ohio. We're releasing this before that happens. And so if you're a $3 member to our Patreon, which you can get to at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, then you will get my reaction to what happens when the, when the votes actually come in. That's going to be on, on our, our Thursday show. In fact, you want to know what? Let's talk about that right now. Ohio voters are casting their votes today as we release this on issue one, a significant state referendum, which if approved will necessitate future state ballot measures to gain 60% support instead of the current 50% plus one to pass. You might remember this. I forget if this was on a Patreon or not, but there was a great political ad where a couple in Ohio are about to fornicate. They're kissing on each other. They're rubbing on each other. And the woman asks the man if he has a condom. He reaches into his drawer, finds a condom. But before he can grab it, uh, an old gnarled hand of a politician grabs it from him and says, I'm in charge now. So I'm just going to watch to make sure nothing illegal happens. And it says, vote no on issue one, because what is really on the ballot here is something more, specifically abortion. Any proposal to appear on a ballot would require signatures in all 88 counties, doubling the current requirement from 44 counties. So this is a weird thing to Ohio. Ohio, you can change the constitution of the state constitution of Ohio via referendum. And so... What issue one wants to do is make it harder to do that because they believe that you might be able to get 50% of Ohio to agree with something in a low turnout election, but you may not be able to get 60% and you may not be able to get enough signatures in all 88 counties. Right now it's 44 counties. Now this has been an election that's gotten a lot of attention and a lot of national money has come in. As of Friday, over 578,000 votes had already been cast. Compare that to 143,000 early votes in the last August election. And the reason why is because there is another referendum that is going to be voted on in November. And that is to enshrine abortion rights into the Ohio Constitution, essentially overriding the governor's law that abortion will be restricted after six weeks. What this referendum would do is revert everything back to Roe versus Wade. And so that's why you've seen a lot of national money going into this. We'll tell you about the results on Thursday's show patrons let's get into something else look who's third look who's third Vivek Ramaswamy according 
to the real clear politics average is now the third leading candidate for the Republican nomination in 2024. Yes, the political neophyte is now besting a former vice president in Mike Pence, two former governors in Nikki Haley and Asa Hutchinson, a sitting senator in Tim Scott. Oh, sorry, three former governors, Chris Christie as well. Sitting senator in Tim Scott, a current governor in Doug Burgum, and all the other folks that are running. So good for Vivek. Good for Vivek Ramaswamy. He has uh, worked really hard. He has established a national foundation for himself. And, you know, proof is in the pudding. I'm a big scoreboard guy, so I got to give him a lot of credit. When he first announced, I didn't think he had the issue to elevate him. Well, he's proven me wrong. And with that new recognition comes more attention. And this one is delightful for anybody who has been a listener to this show for a while because the opposition research for Vivek Ramaswamy came from a former guest of this show. We spoke to him when he was running for governor of California in the recall, but former PX3 guest Meet Kevin who is a financial influencer. That's who that's who brought the bad news. So here's Kevin if you go on his his Twitter, go to Real Meet Kevin on X. He alleges that as a biotech entrepreneur, Vivek purchased an Alzheimer drug which had reportedly failed trials from GlaxoKleinSmith, which is a gigantic pharmaceutical company. Vivek renamed it. He had his own mother look over the failed results and determine them to be successful. IPO'd the company that would allegedly be selling an Alzheimer's drug that had a lot of hope, despite the fact that it, according to Kevin, did not have a lot of hope, and then sold it off and watched it tank. Essentially, a hopium pill pump and dump. Vivek's campaign responded by pointing out that Kevin advertised uh, FTX. But I will say, at least from what I saw, they did not directly rebut the charges as of this podcast. All I got to say is I have no idea whether this is the actual case, but the higher you climb, my friend, the more the dirt in your past form into sentient boogeymen and punch you in the butt. That's the kind of professional political analysis that you get from this show. And finally, Donald Trump blared Sunday morning that his legal team would be, quote, immediately asking for a recusal of U.S. District Court Judge Tanya Chutkin from his latest criminal case, proclaiming but not revealing Quote, very powerful grounds for that demand, this via Politico. Hours later, his attorney, who had spent all day on television promoting the points that they will seek to make in court to find Donald John Trump innocent of this Jack Smith indictment, 
John Loro publicly walked back that plan, saying Trump was speaking, quote, with a layman's political sense, end quote, and reacting primarily because Chutkin was nominated to the bench by a Democrat. She was confirmed 95-0 by the Senate in 2014 after Barack Obama nominated her. Quote, Laura, we haven't made a final decision on that issue at all. I think as lawyers, we have to be very careful with these issues and handle them with the utmost delicacy. And yet, on Monday morning, Trump was again hammering the recusal issue, calling Chutkin, quote, the judge of Jack Smith's dreams who must be recused. There is a lot going on in that case, and specifically, a lot of questions around whether or not Donald Trump will be disallowed from talking about the case in public, which the Trump team and legal team and everybody is vehemently, vehemently against because they believe it restricts his political rights and his ability to campaign. And that wraps it up for us today. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go. Sign up at the $3 level, get two bonus podcasts each and every week. Now's the time you need it, friends. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Now back to the show. You always know what your opponent's got to say because they've already told you. Are you ready? Are you ready? 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 Are you ready? Oh, yeah. Asa Hutchinson. Asa. I I hate this guy's name. I just, because I want to call him Asia, but it's Asa. Asa. It's not Asa. It's Asa. Asa Hutchinson. That's what you call him. The year is 2018. Hutchinson is seeking his second and final term as Arkansas governor. His opponents are Jared Henderson, a Democrat, and Mark West, a Libertarian. Let me just tell you that so far in all of our debates that we have covered for debate prep, this is the lowest rent in terms of production values. This is obviously shot in a local television studio. There is no audience that is there. It is not taking place in a regular venue. I will also note, we're not going to play a lot of clips from him, but Mark West, the libertarian, the third guy on stage, is also much shorter than his opponents, and the cameras do him no favors. There's multiple times where they're shooting from a low angle, so it looks like this poor man is just so small. Two giants, so small. I mean, you don't need to do it to that guy. Give the man an apple box. This is Hutchinson's first answer. It's about Medicare work requirements post Obama. Lower unemployment rate than the national average. When you've reached the lowest unemployment rate in the history of Arkansas, people are working, but also we need to move more people into the workforce. The work requirement is a a way to not only balance compassion with responsibility, but it's also for those able-bodied people without dependent children at home, a means for them to get more training, to be able to find access to a job. And that's what we want to do. We don't want to leave them in generations of poverty. We want to assist them with health care, but also to get the training necessary to work. 
That's why the work requirement is absolutely the right balance that we can achieve. When it terms, comes to how we have implemented this, it is important to know that anybody who needs assistance, there's, they go to the DHS office just like they do on SNAP benefits. They get the assistance they need. We just want to be able to identify them so that we can help them move on to work and get the training that's needed. <coughs> the people of Arkansas support this kind of work requirement for able-bodied individuals, and they support it, and Mr. Henderson's idea would cost us a lot. First of all, to say that someone who's able-bodied shouldn't have to be working when they don't have dependent children adds to that burden and that generational poverty. We want to move them to work. Secondly, if under Mr. Henderson's proposal, there would be over 250,000 people that would lose their health insurance, and here's the reason why. Because without that work requirement, it will not have the support of the Arkansas legislature and the Arkansas public. They would lose their insurance, the whole program would die, the work requirement is the right balance. Immediate thoughts on Hutchinson. He jumps off the screen compared to his two opponents. But in the way that you have to wonder, is he just a big fish in a small pond? He does look more comfortable and he very much looks like a politician. He's also always smiling, which can and does get a little unnerving when the topics become more serious. That being said, his delivery is boring. And it's very clear that nobody on that stage, and as we found out in that state, is really capable enough of making him level his game up. So let's get to the hardest question of the debate. This is about state government corruption, including Hutchinson's nephew that had been caught up during. Hutchinson's first term. Someone who served in public life, in Congress, and two presidents, it's very troubling as governor to see these kind of ethical violations, uh, really criminal conduct. And it starts with the heart. You've got to have your elected officials doing the right thing and hold them accountable when they don't. Uh, under these circumstances, you see that this started in 2013, 2014, long before I became governor. The wrongdoing has crossed administrations, has crossed political parties, and we want to hold those that are responsible accountable. The second thing that we need to do, though, is to make sure that our ethics laws are strengthened. We want to strengthen the penalty provisions for the Ethics Commission. Uh, we want to be able to make sure that our campaign finance laws, that there's proper disclosures. And so there's a reform package that I've presented that we hope that will pass, that will help to make sure that we prevent conflicts of interest, we have the right transparency there, and we hold people accountable. Let me come back, though, to something I think is very important that's already been raised, and that is the work requirement. Uh, Mr. Henderson raised the point that uh, somehow we're going to magically get uh, the legislature to approve 250000 being on the expanded Medicaid when we don't add reform measures in there like the work requirement. Under his plan, there would be 250,000 or more that would lose their health insurance because the legislature would not enact and approve the Medicaid expansion 
Arkansas works without that work requirement. It takes three-fourths vote of the legislature, and this is where it's not a practical solution to say we're going to do away with the work requirement. We're not going to ask people to be responsible and accountable. We're just going to spend the money, spend the money, and then that's when the program ends and 250,000 people would be out of health care. This is not a great answer for me. My opinion, he's got to center the condemnation and point out that the revelations and punishment for the ethics violations, including ones involving his own family, came out during his administration. And again, he's smiling through the whole thing. Which, dude, we're talking about corruption and your family being involved in it. I don't believe that you should be smiling. That's just my opinion. And then there's the message discipline. Obviously, Hutchinson is running as a front runner here. It's very little. There is very little chance that he's going to lose this election. But to go back to the work requirement at the end of this, to me, demonstrates a lack of economy. If you are doing too much, it means to the audience that they are going to feel that you have something to prove. In my opinion, in the world in which debates are just competitive television commercials, he should be talking about his vision. Do not respond to anything that these guys are saying unless it's something that you desperately believe will look good the more that you talk about it. All right, here's another answer from Hutchinson about not reducing, transforming government. Governor Hutchinson, you released a government transformation plan, a plan you say will save about $15 million and cut the number of departments from 42 to 15. How do you ensure that state employees will keep their jobs, and how do you ensure that implementing this all at once runs smoothly for employees and Arkansans? Well, first of all, you have to look at the track record on transformation. This is not something we just started on uh, in the last six months. We've been working on it for four years, and we've already, through combining agencies, mergers, we have reduced state employment by 1,500 employees. Now, this was simply by attrition when someone retired, when they left government employment. We looked at it, do we really need that position? Can we save and be more efficient through technology? And as a result of that, we've saved taxpayers money. Now we're looking at the larger scale of things with transformation, where we take 42 departments of government that report directly to me, reduce them down to 15, largest government transformation since Governor Dale Bumpers initiated it that in the 1970s. So it's a very significant transformation. What do you say to the state employees? Look at my track record. Uh, we are, are not going to be eliminating positions just because we're having a transformation. Over time, there will be nat natural efficiencies that will be achieved through technology, through consolidations. Employees' jobs uh, will be protected, but we will lose some employment through efficiencies over time. That's the humanitarian way to approach it. And through this, we're going to have great success, better delivery of services for the taxpayers, more accountability, and we'll save some money down the road. 
One transformation thing we did through technology is it used to be that you'd have to go down to the revenue office to get your car tags renewed. Take your number, wait in line until your number is called. Now you can go online, you can renew your tags, you can pay your sales tax. That's the kind of transformation that makes sense in a technological world that we need to apply to government as well. Here's another criticism I have. Hutchinson is very good at explaining things, but he's not particularly good at vision. Why do you need to reduce government? Visions can be positive and negative. Why do you want to reduce government? Well, I want to reduce government because what I don't want is for the state government to continue to balloon, to sop up the taxpayers' money while creating by the necessity of their own jobs more and more steps between citizens and their representatives and the services for which we have promised them. So when I say transforming government, I'm speaking as Hutchinson, when I say transforming government, what I mean is creating a more effective government, creating a government that the citizens can be proud of. You got to sell the dystopic world that would exist if you are not making these changes. And then you can look to the future a little bit. Like, what is that money going to? So we have saved X amount of money. When you're the governor, you can you can do some creative math and just say, you want to know what that's going to a news thing that gives eyeballs for free, like whatever, literally anything that the state government does, you can immediately tie to we've reduced this amount of positions. That means that we have reduced X amount of salary, X amount of liability for pensions going forward. And all of that money is going to the most sympathetic thing you can possibly think of. In fact, if I were Hutchinson, I would probably have two or three of those that I would challenge my opponents to say, oh, if you don't think I'm doing something right here, I guess you hate free eyeballs. Here's another Hutchinson answer on charter schools and specifically the role of public school teachers. Since I've been governor, I've been in over 65 high schools and schools all across Arkansas, small and large, talking to teachers, visiting about the issues that they face. And one thing that I'm convinced of is that our traditional public schools can compete with any charter school, that they can compete with any private school. They do well. And we want to continue to support them and make sure our public school system is strong and competitive. When you look at the initiatives that we have emphasized over the last four years is the reading initiative. So they're reading at grade level in the third grade, which is a foundation of reading. Our RISE initiative has been in over 300 schools across Arkansas. Continuing to give an option for the students that want to engage in workforce education in case they decide not to go to college to get a welding certificate. We've enhanced the ability of our students to access those kind of good paying jobs in the industrial sector. Continue to emphasize STEM education and computer coding in our schools. These are success stories for Arkansas and our public schools are doing well. Teachers are a critical part of that. That's why I have set forth a plan that I was encouraged that the legislature embraced, which is to raise teacher pay once again, as we have done in the past, to raise it over the next four years by $4,000, so it will be the highest in the region. Now, Mr. Henderson has another plan 
that says we're going to pay for teacher pay increases by uh, letting out 20% of our prison population. Uh, we're going to reduce our prison population by 20%. Let me tell you, you let thousands and thousands out of prison arbitrarily without a plan, then you're going to wind up increasing the danger to our society. That's not the right way. We've got a better plan to pay for the increase in teachers. Pay. What we did not play is the answer that set this up. And that was Jared Henderson saying that public school teachers are the most important position in the state. So I hate this answer from Hutchinson. It's just super weird. And it's because and I came to realize this, the more I watched Hutchinson just isn't great as turning his hips and crushing a point. You know, if you think about it in like, like a baseball metaphor, it's like, if you're going to hit a home run, you got to really put your body in front of it. You got to get that momentum. And some of the best debaters are people that can absolutely do that. Trump's not really great at that. He's more of a sparrer. But when you when you talk about Obama, when you talk about Clinton, when you talk about Reagan, there is that combination of point communication and timing that really allows you to just bash bash a point into the stratosphere. So for example, if I were Hutchinson, I would guide him more along this line. We do need great teachers and we need to pay our great teachers. We need to know that they are comfortable and they are going to thrive. And when your governor, like I am governor and I've been blessed to be your governor, Arkansas. Not only have I made the commitment to these teachers that we are going to pay them more, a $4,000 raise phased in over the next few years. But when none of my opponents on stage know firsthand is how to pay for it. Because when you're governor, you actually have to do that. It's not just making promises. And you can look at our budgets. And you can see what we spent money on and what we didn't spend money on. But here's one thing that I will promise you, the Arkansas voter right now. Here's how we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it by letting thousands of potentially violent prisoners out of prison for the sake of reform. You do not need to make that trade-off. You do not need to endanger our state so we can pay our teachers more. So when you are headed to the ballot box, you have a decision. Do you want somebody that demonstrates compassion and competence? Or do you want somebody that will allow this state to be endangered? And let's be honest. If my opponent can't figure out a way to pay for these teachers without letting prisoners out, are these teachers even really going to get paid? That's what I would do. You know, you, you just, you have to tell a little story or at least the best people do and, and bring the humanity into these, these answers. All right. Last question. This is a reminder. We're in 2018 here and Donald Trump is talking a lot about trade deals. We're getting, we're getting pantsed. 
China's laughing at our little dingling. So this was the trade deal, the trade war, rather pre-trade deal, the trade war with China. We're talking soybeans. This is Hutchinson pushing back against Trump. Governor, since President Trump started trade talks with several countries, most notably China, Arkansas farmers have taken it on the chin, enduring punishing prices for products like soybeans. Meanwhile, companies like Walmart warn that retaliatory tariffs will result in higher prices on a range of goods for their customers. How much time do we give the Trump administration in its trade war with China, which, at least in the short term, threatens the livelihood of Arkansas's agriculture industry and the pocketbooks of Arkansas consumers? In my conversations with President Trump, I've personally pushed back on uh, tariffs and how they have hurt us in Arkansas in terms of our agricultural community. Now, I recognize, though, that uh, he has achieved some success. We have a new uh, NAFTA agreement uh, that needed to be modernized. That was a tough trade policy he took, and he had success in it. Whenever it comes to uh, overseas, uh, you have to look at a continued trade war with China that uh, hurts the consumers in Arkansas, that hurts our farmers. Right now, our soybean farmers are stressed to find the uh, markets that they need for uh, their pr uh, product. And so uh, I want to see an end to this trade skirmishing and war. Hopefully we can get that resolved successfully, but it needs to be done very quickly. I've been a voice for Arkansas agriculture uh, in terms of our openness of global trade because we have to depend upon that. We're such uh, great producers. Uh, I was the first governor uh, to go to Cuba to market our agricultural products after we restored diplomatic relations to Cuba. <clears throat> We actually sold uh, tons of uh, poultry to Cuba after uh, I left there, and we reached an agreement there. But we need to open up that market. We need to open up China's market. We need to push on Europe and say we need that market open to Arkansas agriculture. That's what will help us in the long run. I'll continue to be a voice for that global trade and, uh, and, and make sure the administration knows how that impacts us. It impacts us also in our recruitment of industry because some of our industry in Arkansas depends upon aluminum or steel that comes from overseas in their production line that they can't get elsewhere. And so hopefully this can be resolved very quickly so we continue the job growth has been successful in Arkansas for us. And that pretty much brings me to where my assumption is with Asa Hutchinson, and that is... He's kind of an empty suit. He is a textbook wait in line pre MAGA Republican. He was appointed by Reagan. He was appointed by Bush. He eventually got into Arkansas politics. He has now ceded that to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I don't think him being on stage is going to change a single mind. I don't think he's got the charisma. And I think when he gets to the national level, he will be exposed. I do believe he is a big fish in a small pond. And that and dominant Republican voter registration is the reason why he's a two-term governor. And by the way, he beat the living crap out of everybody else. When the results came in in 2018, which, by the way, was a bad cycle for Republicans. Asa Hutchinson had 65.3% of the vote. Jared Henderson had 31.8% of the vote. 
That's what you call in the South whooping. But there was another man in 2018 that also was running for governor in the sunshine state of Florida. It was Congressman Ron DeSantis versus Andrew Gillum, the former mayor of Tallahassee. We will break down that debate and what it says about old Ronnie D's chances at the end of this month. DeSantis debate prep on Friday. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Please email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can uh, follow me live, px3live.com. You want to hit me with a one-time donation, it is paypal.me slash payjury if you're on the PayPal. If you've got Venmo cash sitting around, which I've heard is not real, Justin-Young-20. If you have Cash App, or send me a buck on Cash App, PX3 Cash. And if you would like to send me anything you would like in the mail, P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Just make it out to Justin Young. Don't make it out to the podcast. They get weird about it at the post office. Post Office Box, 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, the only place you can get bonus content is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week, covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Including Jason. Edwin, C. Garcia, Matthew T., Matt, John Gross, El Basso, John, Craig Potts, MC Radio, Bugs Life, Neemeister, Unsafe DB Level, Amanda, Yield, Pinball Shop, DP4, Bongo, Catherine, Todd, and Vocaloria Young for King of the New World Order, Edison, Up, Up, Down, Down, Left, Right, Left, Right, BA, Select, Start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Idris, Arzlani, and Blue Front, and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic, Terran, Molly's Dashing Debut, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, is awesome. Brad, Richard, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike who loves Frank, got abducted, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, the Gen, A-L-D-L-D-L-D, really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua. You want your name read on the show? One place to do it. Take politics seriously. Dot com. That wraps it up for us today on Friday's edition of the show. We're going to talk about Devin Archer. A name that you might have heard he is the former business partner of Joe Biden. He just spoke to Congress in a closed session. He spoke to Tucker Carlson on X on Twitter. Uh, and I wanted to do a little bit more research. So we're going to talk about him on Friday, along with the DeSantis debate prep. It's going to be a great episode. Uh, also, if you happen to be. At DEFCON this weekend, that is the hacker convention. First, shut off your phones. And two, if you are uh, in the dealer's room, swing by the Hack 5 booth. Say hi. I'll be there. Till next time. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying 
Some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh! you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.